Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, Kaylee Lines and I, with our conversation of the day, and it's with the gentleman, Peter Hotez, uh, well, the dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College, but far more than that, someone who has fought the virology and virus wars and the parasitology wars for decades. The difference is Peter Hotez understands the tropical medicine of Africa, the challenges of the geography of Southern Africa that we don't understand. Peter, to me, that's so much the mystery here is how ignorant we are about what needs to be done in Southern Africa. We don't understand it's larger than America on a geographic basis. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you actually were to superimpose a a map of the United States and the African continent, it would barely register. I mean, the African continent is vast geographically, <clears throat> and unfortunately, um, the re what we've the one lesson we've learned about the worst variants that we have is they arise out of large unvaccinated populations. Uh, the Alpha variant arose out of an unvaccinated population in the UK in 2020. Delta out, out of an unvaccinated population. In India in 2021, what did people think was going to happen uh, allowing Africa, yeah. the African continent, to go completely unvaccinated? This is not a hookworm, and you've been leading on this for decades. You did your Ph.D. thesis at Rockefeller on uh, the horrific tropical diseases, the parasites and, and all that. If you know the terrain, what holds the rich guys back from helping the poor guys? Is it, a, is it a, an economic constraint, a financial constraint, or is it a moral constraint? It was, you know, the way I see it, Tom, was a science policy failure. Um, it, the G7 countries were so fixed when this virus hit on speed and innovation that they all ran like a little kid's soccer game where the ball goes in one direction. It was all about mRNA technology and new, new and exciting you know what I sometimes say in my frustration, shiny new toys that that no one ever gave thought as any, you know, first year engineering student will tell you that when you have rely exclusively on a brand new technology, there's a learning curve be, before you can go from zero to nine billion doses or nine billion of anything, whether it's widgets or mRNA vaccines. If it's a brand new technology, there's a learning curve. And so there was never the situational awareness among the G7 leaders to say, hey, wait a minute, we also need to balance the portfolio with an older technology that we know we could scale in places like India and Bangladesh and, and Indonesia and on the African continent. And that's what we did. So we've developed this recombinant protein vaccine. It's been licensed with no patents, no strings attached to vaccine developers in India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and now with a developer linked to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And we're doing it and we're making it. Um, but if we had even a fraction of the help that Moderna or Pfizer mm -hmm. had gotten from the G7 countries, we might have had the world vaccinated by now. Peter, you talked about policy failures. Is just imposing travel bans from Southern Africa a policy failure? I, I think it is. We, we've, we've learned that travel bans simply don't work. We learned this from the beginning, right? We remember how in, in 
February of 2020, everybody was so focused on travel bans from China. Meanwhile, the virus had already entered uh, into New York City from Southern Europe to ignite that horrific uh, epidemic in, in uh, across New York City. So we know that this virus is already spread around the world, and that's not because not because there's anything unique to Omicron. That's been true of every variant that we've. Uh, seen so far. By the time we identify a variant, it's already uh, it's already gone global, and uh, and so I think a lot of this is based on optics, where the the especially in the European Union and now the U.S. they want to show that they're doing something, and unfortunately, it's incredibly self defeating. It actually impairs our ability to fight uh, the pandemic. Number one and number two, it punishes African countries, and number three. It hurts the economy because it spreads unnecessary panic among investors. And and uh, so it's it's a policy failure on all accounts. Well, we did see that panic in the markets taking shape on Friday. This Monday morning, we are getting a bit of a lift to them now as people really understand that we have very little information at this point. What information is most critical to ascertain first? There's three three things we need to know. One, about the severity of the illness and so far it it does not look like this variant is producing anything unusual in terms of symptoms or severity of illness, but we'll know more. Second, we need to know if the vaccines, our current vaccines, will cross-protect against the Omicron variant. That's what we're doing in our lab, our laboratories this week with our <laughs> vaccine, as is, I'm sure, Pfizer and Moderna. And the way you do that is you measure, you look at antibody responses to your vaccines and show that it crosses, neutralizes the Omicron variant or, or what's called a pseudovirus uh, variant. And we'll know that in, in the coming days. I think there's yeah. a good possibility that with the third immunizations and, and that boost that you'll get enough virus right. neutralizing antibodies to cross protect at least partially I, I don't know that for certain but but that that's yeah. the hope and then we really need to understand the transmissibility we don't know that peter one final question i really looked at the vaccination trends this morning and i i, I think what we're going to hear from the president is we need to get from 59 percent vaccinated to 69 percent vaccinated how quickly is that doable well, 69% unfortunately won't cut it. We need 85% of the U.S. population vaccinated. And, you know, Tom, we've got this horrific situation in the United States where since June 1, 2021, 150,000 Americans who refused vaccinations needlessly perished from COVID-19, 150,000. So anti-science defiance and aggression is now a leading mm -hmm. killer of, of yeah. young Americans in the United States. And as long as we have that defiance, it's going to be hard to see how we get to that 85% level. And Peter Hotez, thank you for joining us, particularly your perspective on uh, Southern Africa. He's with Baylor College as well. Alcelinos joining us now, Global Head of FX Strategy at RBC. Alcelinos, help us out there. How sensitive will this market be to incoming economic data, including payrolls Friday? Well, economic data is going to be hard to trade off at the moment, just given, like you said, we're in this wait and see mode with respect to Omicron. Um, the early indications that came out over the weekend from the chair of the South African Medical Association, definitely positive, but everybody acknowledging there's a lot further to go. And, um, and I think for the moment, we're really focused on how markets are trading into year end. You know, Tom, you said it earlier, 
people have had a really good year so far. And part of the reason I think we've seen the pullback we've seen is people are just trying to lock in those gains rather than get too greedy into year end. Do you readjust for middle or late 2022? Is the sense that you have at RBC that all of your wonderful team recalibrates? Look, at this stage, we're much more focused on the central banks that were about to hike and therefore maybe put off by the uncertainty, you know, to do an RBNZ, if you will. Um, and I'd put the Bank of England very much in that category versus other central banks that didn't have any kind of big tightening decisions in the very near term future. And I think by the time you get to the back half of 2022, things will look very different to how they do today. I was sort of surprised, Elsa Lingos, a lack of a dollar retreat in the Omicron news of Friday and to recalibrate with Euro 112.89. Can you call a weaker Euro? Look, I think the euro core will very much depend on, on your Omicron outlook. Um, typically, euro dollar has been trading in line with equities for most of this year. So that's to say when equities were rallying, euro dollar tended to be higher and vice versa. We saw a break in that on Friday, and I'm really glad that's what we saw because it makes perfect sense to me. You know, with the ECB very much back of the queue, lockdowns and the impact of COVID already having hurt the euro in recent weeks, <clears throat> it made sense that should rotate to the dollar. I still have a call for euro dollar lower into next year. I've had that call since the start of the year, not changed it now. Um, but that's very much based on the cyclical strength of the U.S. versus the euro area. And Omicron doesn't change that for me at the moment. So we saw the flipping to euro strength rather than euro weakness on Friday. We also saw a massive bid come into the Japanese yen, and that was coming off of extremely weak levels. Was that just a one-off bid for a safe haven, or do you expect that we actually could see a more persistent reversal there? Look, it's tough for the yen because I think the closer you get to Fed normalization, the more you'll anticipate that change in the hedge ratios of Japanese investors. And, you know, everybody likes to position for that with dollar yen higher. Um, but I, at the moment, the yen, the Swiss franc, and even to some extent, the euro are the very popular, very clean safe havens in FX. The dollar, like you said, a little bit more mixed, actually outperforming against most of the rest of FX, just not the majors. Do you want to talk about the problem chart in EMFX right now? Dollar lira. Also, let's go there. We're here from the Turkish leader this morning. We heard from him about 10 minutes ago. Says he will never advocate for a rate hike. A lot of people see him as the de facto leader of the Turkish Central Bank. How on earth do you play that currency, if at all, right now, Elsa? <laughs> I mean, it's a very poisonous question right there. Um, all I'll say is that positioning in the lira is definitely not crowded. Um, we don't think the market is massively long dollar lira. Um, and I think that, if anything, um, creates real concerns when the central bank is not willing to hike rates. Asselinos, great to catch up. Joining us from RBC on this FX market. Andrew Sliman joins us this morning as well. How do you generate those numbers? What is the core Sliman religion that generates those stunning performance numbers? Well, good morning. You know, look, I think it's flexibility to being open-minded to what the market offers. Uh, last year, travel leisure stocks got absolutely obliterated, and uh, we bought those. Uh, this year, it's been a little bit more inflation value-oriented, and and it's basically my belief that as much as people talk about uh, inflation-sensitive stocks, pe most people are overweight in growth stocks. And so this has been a little bit more painful as energy has been the best-performing sector. Financials have done right. well. 
Most people talk about that, but they're not invested that way. So having that bias has really helped us right. build them to the competition. I did a, a Bloomberg study, Andrew, off the trading envelope, and I did a fitted standard deviation move, and we've had a 4.6 standard deviation move in the last four days. Is that a slime and correction? Well, you know, look, I, on the one hand, I do agree with, you know, what Goldman Sachs saying is, you know, more transmissible, less virulent. I do think that people tend to not react the same way to the issues over and over. So COVID as a reaction is less so. But then again, there's a lot of complacency. The market's done so well this year. Yes, I understand the market was down a lot on Friday, but I saw retail money coming in. People are buying the dip. And so high levels of complacency. So I don't think, you know, we'll get a bounce back, but I don't think it's going to be, uh, you know, dramatic because of that kind of complacency to this issue over and over. So if it morphs into something more serious, that, that could be a concern. I doubt it. I think there's much bigger issues next year than COVID. Well, let's talk about those issues now. For the first time, Andrew, I've got to say this year, the first time I sense some real hesitancy in your voice around this equity market. Typically, it's some conviction, some confidence, some yeah. bullishness. Yeah. Andrew, you're not in your head. Yeah. What's happened to that? Look, I mean, very, here's a very simple rule, Jonathan. The third year coming off a bear market or low, it's harder. The market doesn't do as well. And that's because financial conditions start to tighten because, you know, central banks say, hey, things are getting better. We don't need this level of, uh, you know, uh, liquidity. So financial conditions are going to tighten. Uh, and I think that will be offset by better earnings than expected next year. But the result is, you know, kind of a you know single digit year. And, you know, as well as I do, with a market open as many days as it is every day and you can have a one or two percent move on any day, that's a lot of volatility around a single digit year so i suspect that uh next year is going to be a tougher year to make money as long as it, 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 unless you stay kind of focused on fundamentals and buying companies that are beating estimates and i think that will be the big story again next year uh as it was this year peter chair raised a really good point over the weekend i want to read out what he said andrew and you can tell me what you think of it for the first time since the pandemic started we faced a sell-off where it's unclear what the fed and other central banks will do there is no guarantee of easy money going forward does that resonate with you at all yeah I think, I mean, you know, you've got tighter monetary policy coming. You have a potential corporate tax increase, so fiscal policy could be tighter. Those all things lead to a tough, you know, maybe multiples come down a bit. My point is I think that will be offset by better corporate fundamentals, but it's not going to be a great year next year. It's going to be tougher. So that's why I was nodding at you. Yeah, <laughs> this year has been, the game's been on, but I think it will get tougher next year. So to, to right here as we sit today, I think the travel leisure stocks will bounce big today. But I wouldn't chase them because those are high beta stocks. I'm just not so sure you want to have a lot of risk in your portfolio as you go into next year. Andrew, how much of the tough picture for equities is actually predicated on the bond market and potentially higher yields and higher real yields? I think that's part of it. You know, uh, the higher rates are, are part of it. But I, I think it's tighter financial conditions, really, because at the end of the day, you know, really, if the 10 years at one and a half or two percent, I mean, you invert that that P.E. on the bond market is still astronomical. Stocks are cheap relative to bonds. But, yeah, I think higher inflation will get, you know, the Fed nervous uh, and, you know, they may not do anything, but the market's going to start to reflect that. And that's that's why the third year is mm -hmm. a tougher year. And I think that's going to be the story of next year. Does that mean stay away from growth in 2022 or what do you want to own in a year where it's harder to make money? Yeah. 
Sure. I think, you know, as again, going back to what Tom said initially, my view is investors don't have enough of these inflation sensitive stocks in their portfolio. Look at energy. It's the avoided, it's the unloved sector. So I've learned with energy stocks, they keep going up until suddenly everyone gets on board and they get bullish and that's when it collapses. And I just don't think that's the truth there. I see banks, you know, they had big sell-offs on Friday. I think that's a better opportunity to be a buyer today than, you know, you know, the reopening stocks. I don't think, you know, those multiples remain really low. So I think it's in the inflation sensitive over the growth names. But having said that, I don't think we're in a situation like 2000 where, you know, the mega cap tech stocks are that particularly expensive. The high octane ones, boy, they've really come down. I think they can continue you come down. Uh, but it's really this concept that inflation census stocks remain under-owned investors' portfolios because that's not what's worked the last 10 years. Are we going to see higher inflation? I mean, that's our call. Steve Major over at HSBC was heated this morning that longer-term duration yield shows a bet we will not see a persistent pernicious inflation. Do you agree? I think we're moving into a period like the 60s time where we had higher inflation, higher growth, because that's what it seems to me. That's what central bankers want. Uh, and so I think this dual mandate of the Fed of stable prices and maximizing employment seems to be tipping more towards maximizing employment. And that's reminds that? me a little bit more of the 60s <clears throat> than the 2010s. Yeah. And in that environment, the S&P did fine in the 60s. It wasn't until the 70s it struggled. Look at you. But inflation-sensitive stocks did better. Andrew Slimman, right back to the 1960s and 1969, John, in Get Back, because Andrew and I watched Get Back this weekend, the new Beatles documentary. It was, it was phenomenal. You loved that, didn't good. you? It was great. What was Andrew, so great about it? It, it, it's how naked it is. And they even say while they're filming it that they're not happy that they're filming it. And there's some scenes, one scene where George Harrison talks about Eric Clapton is just absolutely stunning at the time. Andrew Sliman and Morgan Stanley. Where can we watch it, that, Tom? Uh, Disney Plus. One thing we will do, John and I and Kaylee will Probably and highly look at the data this week. We have the right guest for that. Jennifer Lee joins senior economist at BMO Capital Markets, who probably and highly always looks at the economic data. What matters this week, Jennifer? Oh, good morning, everyone. Um, you know, of course, it's going to be all about the jobs data. Um, that's always the highlight uh, almost every single month. But you know what? I'm going to point to the ISM surveys as, uh, as two surveys I think are going to be far more interesting than payrolls. Um, because that's where you get all those little comments and an inside look, basically, at what purchasing managers are facing these days. Like, so this is like on-the-ground uh, news. And we know that these supply chain problems, they can't last forever. And I think these two surveys are probably going to be the first place that you can probably glean that things are hopefully getting a little bit easier. I was hoping to see that last month, but we didn't see it. So we'll see what the uh, respondents are saying uh, for November, but it was interesting though, I will say that last month, I noticed that a couple of them were mentioning some workarounds, like because they don't have, you don't have X, well then we'll take Y. Right. So I noticed that comment in like the education sector and in wholesale. So people are trying to, you know, people are adapting, or businesses are adapting and they're figuring out ways to get around these supply chain issues. If the economy is humming into year end, and certainly that's the reports we've received, can you gauge what the first quarter of next year looks like? So right now we have a 
3.5% annualized gain for the first quarter. Uh, and this will be a little bit slower than, uh, than what we're probably going to see for the fourth quarter. Um, but again, it's all, you know, it's all within, uh, within the, like the, the, the trend. It will still be about, uh, you know, about 4% above year ago levels. So the gains will continue. And this is as we see some, um, some easing, I guess, of the supply pressures as, uh, as the year begins. Do these forecasts, Jennifer, now have a huge asterisk next to them until we find out a little bit more about this new variant that we're obsessing over over the last week or so, the last few days? Oh, everything I think has an asterisk around it, but I think there's like, I mean, even the weekend, I mean, I will admit that I was even trying to figure out how to pronounce it. Um, um, but I think we have to figure out still, there's so many unknowns about this new variant, just trying to determine how serious it is, you know, and yes, we know that it's easily transmissible, but, you know, are we going to be back to packed ICUs, you know, let's hope not. And so yeah. I think that's that's the big question mark. And as well, I mean, this is the big difference from last time around, like last year, is that, you know, we've got around 70% roughly of the population uh, uh, vaccinated, and, and that's the huge difference. Now, whether or not, you know, it, it will be effective against this particular variant, we will see, but it definitely helps, helps bar some of those effects, I would think. We've got to wait to find out. And the reason I ask that, Jennifer, is you tee up the ISM. Typically, I would too. I'd say the ISM, then onto payroll, is a really important week for economic data. For many market participants, right now. I wonder how sensitive they'll be to that incoming data, given the conversation we're having more broadly about COVID. Jen, when you speak to people in the market right now, how receptive are they to this message that you should focus on the ISMs this week? Because they're focusing on something else. I still think we have to focus in on the data. I mean, a lot of this, again, is just fear, especially with, with, uh, with COVID and, and, you know, everyone is, 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 is it's, on, it's, it's understandable why we would be fearful of something. This is of, of a big unknown. Um, but I think the data still matter, um, especially for the Federal Reserve. And as we see, you know, price pressure is rising continuously. You know, we're going to expect some sort of a rate hike um, in probably the, in the third quarter of, uh, of 2022. Well, Jennifer, speaking of fear and price pressures, we've seen consumer confidence waning at the same time that you're not seeing it translate into consumer spending or consumption. They are still out in the economy. They are buying. They're maybe using those stored up savings in order to make purchases of items that are more expensive than they were, say, six months ago. When do you expect the consumer to start feeling these inflationary forces more? I think they are already um, facing it, and that's why we're seeing some, you know, some wavering, I guess, on the consumer uh, confidence front. But at the end of the day, I mean, it also depends on, you know, on, on I hate to say it, but the time of day and what day of the week that they're being asked this, this, this question. But at the end of the day, it's all about savings and incomes. And we saw from last week a very solid increase in wages and salaries, which at the end of the day, that's, that's really what matters. And having a nice little nest egg put aside for a rainy day, and, you know, I'm sure we're going to have a, quite a few of those uh, in, in the coming months. So I think that at the end of the day is just what matters most for consumer confidence. And of course, everyone is you know, not happy about all these uh, increasing in, increases in prices. But as long as they have the incomes to afford it, you know, I think that's, you know, that's the bottom line of that. What do you expect we'll see from the wage data specifically on Friday? Um, so we are looking for uh, um, um, an increase of about four tenths on, on earnings, about 5% year over year. Um, so that's basically in line with the last average of the last seven months or so. Again, steady increases to help, you know, pad everyone's wallets and, and savings accounts it's because the labor market remains very, very tight. And who knows what's going to happen with, uh, with, this, with this new variant, if it's going to put pressure on people to, you know, perhaps not go back to the, to the workforce and, um, as quickly as they were thinking about. So then you're going to see higher wages coming from the businesses to help entice them over. Jennifer Lee, always good to hear from you. Thanks for being with us. Jennifer Lee there of BMO on the data for the week ahead. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.